I just want to invite you to follow along with me as I read from God's Word this morning. Ezra chapter 9, starting at verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led, them, have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now when I heard this, this is Ezra, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great because of our sins. We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity and to pillage and to humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious and leaving us a remnant, and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat of the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, You've punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break Your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who would commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. And we're left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we approach your word, we need you. And we need you to open our eyes. And by the power of your spirit, will you speak through your word? Help us understand it. And once understood, help us take hold of it. That we might give you free reign to bring change in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're really good at getting started at things. But we're really not so good at keeping going. When I put that on the screen, what in your world has already come to mind? Something you're good at starting, but then over the long haul, we kind of peter out a little bit. And what was once exciting and fun and fascinating becomes drudgery, or even we just kind of put it off until later because we're kind of done. We're really good at getting started with things, not so good at keeping going. Here's my example. So I have this old motorcycle that I love. And the way it actually functions is mostly a mystery to me. It has something to do with pistons and explosions and things. And I pretend like I know what I'm doing with it. I installed forward controls because I'm freakishly tall. I tweaked the angle of the handlebars. I installed saddlebags. I even changed the angle of the shifter for my left foot. I set up the bike just for me because, man, I'm good at getting things started. I wanted to set, I wanted to use it. I wanted to have fun on this bike. But when push comes to shove, I don't actually know how to keep it running. Not yet, anyways. Not right now. Because right now, it's actually sitting in my driveway dead. It won't start. And it's my fault. This has happened before. My dead bike in my driveway. About six weeks ago it wouldn't start and I tested the battery and the electrical system, the starter solenoid, uh, the, the fuses, everything worked fine but when I would click the starter it would just go click and taunt me. So I asked a mechanic friend of mine for some help. He tinkered with it for about three minutes and said, hey, you got a wrench? And I said, what size? He goes, I don't care. Okay, so I hand him a big wrench, takes it, he lines it up and he, bang! He just smacks the starter motor on the motorcycle with a wrench. And I was shocked. The bike was obviously offended because it started right up after he did that. And he told me, so your starter motor's done. It was stuck. I unstucked it. So go buy a new one. I'll even help you install it and I'll teach you how. Best mechanic ever. So you know what I did that night? Nothing. And the night after that, nothing. I did not go and buy a new starter motor. I figured if it just quit on me, now I know how to fix it. You just hit it with a wrench. Because I thought I knew what I could, I thought I knew the answer now. I thought I had the secret sauce. I thought I understood the machine. I thought that I could do it my way and ignore the one who actually knew what he was talking about. Turns out I was wrong. That trick works once, maybe twice, not three times. And you know what the hardest thing in the world for me to do is? It's to admit I'm wrong. It's to admit that I can't fix this on my own. It's to admit that I might need someone else's help. It's to say, I can't do this. Because I'm really good at the getting started side of things. 
Setting up a motorcycle is great, but maintenance? Mm, that's just annoying. It's consuming. It's hard work. It feels unnecessary. And what on earth does this have to do with Ezra? Well, we've been talking about renewal. And, and as we've said, it's not some magic moment. It's not spontaneous combustion. It's not like, poof, now we're renewed. But we're seeing, rather than it being an event, we're seeing it as a process. This is what we've seen unfolding through the whole book of Ezra. It is a gradual and increasing receptivity to God's unrelenting call to welcome us back to Himself. So it's God's initiative. He's the one who stirs our hearts towards Himself. He's both the agent and the focus of renewal. Sometimes we may encounter opposition. Sometimes we encounter delay. But there is one thing that keeps us from the ongoing enjoyment of a renewed life more than anything else. And it's not an outside factor, but an inside one. It's sin. Oh, church word alert. Bahuga, bahuga. Sin. What, what do we mean when we say sin? And most churches will say, well, it comes from an old English archery term, right? To miss the mark. So they would aim at the target, and if they would like completely miss, someone would call out sin, and you go, oh, I'm so embarrassed. To simply miss the mark. But I think that undersells sin. I think it's woefully inadequate to just think about it as missing the mark. The biblical context for a word like this is to tell God either explicitly or implicitly with your actions and attitudes to get lost. It's to live against Him, against His standards, against His commandments, against His purposes, and to ignore His love for you. It's to take His offer of an ongoing relationship and to throw it back in His face and it's basically telling God, either directly with our words or indirectly with our decisions and attitudes, get out of my life. So if renewal is the growing receptivity to God offering relationship, sin is the opposite. Sin is the gradual hardening of our hearts against God through the choices we make, the attitudes we hold on to, and the behaviors in which we are engaged Sin is the opposite of renewal. And the problem is, when sin isn't dealt with, you're left sitting dead in the driveway. The question this morning isn't, how do we get renewal? That's actually not the question. The people in this day and age, in Ezra's day, they come back from Babylon. God, it was great. They had the renewal. The question is not, how do we get it? The question is, how do we keep it? Turns out it requires ongoing maintenance and you can't just hit it with a wrench. The question is how do you keep going with renewal when sin ruins everything? Because it does. I mean, you know this. You've felt this, haven't you? You know that you go from that place of feeling like you have a close connection with the Lord and then you screw up and then you can't really make eye contact with him for a while. How do, you, how do you keep going with God? He keeps inviting, he keeps inviting. He says, come, I want you to know me. I want you to be in relation. Let's hang out, he says. And then we mess the whole thing up. How do you keep going when sin ruins everything? 
And this morning, I believe God's Word has an answer for us. This morning, God has something to show you if you'll let Him. He doesn't want you sitting dead in the driveway. He wants you on the open road with Him. So let's remember where we are in the story so far then. The story so far. This is the recap portion at the beginning of the episode. God has rescued His people from Babylon. Brought them out of captivity. A second exodus as in the days of old. He unilaterally, unequivocally rescued them. Not because they'd earned it. Not because they deserved it. But because He said, I love you and I'm faithful. And so He grabbed them and picked them up and brought them home. And He brought them back to Judah. That's kind of the God we serve, right? He's always been a God of grace. Old and New Testament. He always rescues His people. And at first, the people responded really well. Remember way back in Ezra 3, the first thing they did was worship. Before they built the temple, before they started building walls, they said, first thing we got to do is start worshiping this great God. They got it right, right away. They were good at getting things started. But maybe you were here last week, and by chapter 7 and 8, some 60 years later, Ezra comes onto the scene and he brings the law, the great story of God. And his love for his people. But that story also had some dark chapters in it. Right? As, as, as Ezra read the law from morning till afternoon, he didn't just read the highlights and the good parts. He read all of it. Even the chapters that recounted the history when God's people turned away from him. When God's people said, we want nothing to do with you, God. He even read the chapters where they chose to throw their relationship with God back in His face. They chose to live their own ways thinking they knew better than He did. They abandoned their God who rescued them and loved them. And very specifically, They read the warnings of what would happen if they intermarried with other nations who worshipped other gods and had detestable practices. And they saw these curses and they saw these warnings and they saw these consequences. And they also saw the result, which is their most recent history of being carried off into exile in Babylon. God granted them the very thing they so obviously wanted, which was life without Him. And they were completely annihilated as a nation. And their story fell apart. And this is what Ezra was reading to a rescued people. A people who had just been rescued from that captivity. He was reading this story and saying, don't you understand, if you throw this back in God's face, this is a terrible idea because we even know what happens when this happens. And so Ezra has a little flip out moment. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see in verse 1, it's after these things had been done. After Ezra had read the law, after the people had gathered, remember, and they, had, they, they started to weep, and they're like, no, 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 don't weep. This is a celebration of who God is, so let's feast and let's celebrate who God is. And after all this had been done, the leaders came to Ezra and said, <clears throat> hey, Ezra. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, including the priests and the Levites, 
have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites even. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and officials have led the way to this unfaithfulness. And Ezra's thinking, how, how can this be? Ezra, you know, just can't even. He, he tear, the, the, the text goes on to say he tears his tunic and cloak, right? I, uh, when I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and my beard. That's the Gimli moment. Not the beard! And then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of all of this unfaithfulness in the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. What's going on in this text that causes Ezra to flip out? To tear his tunic and cloak out his hair and to sit down to collapse in despair and to tremble in fear before God and it sounds like the problems intermarriage what's up with that that doesn't seem like that big a deal they've taken some of their daughters as wives from the south and the sons this that really that that's the big deal lest we misconstrue this text Let me be very, very clear right up front. The problem here is not an issue of ethnicity. The problem here is not an issue of race. The issue on the table is worship. See, way back in the day, the very law that Moses has just, that Moses wrote down and that Ezra had just finished reading had these lines from Exodus chapter 34 in it. Be careful. Not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. This is the part that Ezra quotes later in his prayer. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, there's the issue of worship, they'll invite you. And you'll eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, well, actually it's going to lead your sons to do the same. So the issue here is not an issue of maintaining racial purity. It is not an issue of ethnicity or race. This is all about worship. This is all about God protecting for Himself and calling together people that then He says, you will have a single focus for your life and that will be me and me alone. God says, I am God. And because of that, I don't have to share your affection with anyone else. This is an issue of worship. God clearly said, don't do this. And the people clearly said, yeah, whatever. And we call that sin. They've spit on their relationship with God and they've rejected the very thing He rescued them for, which is this beautiful relationship with Himself. They were on their way. They were experiencing renewal. And then sin threatens to derail it all. 
excursus, sidebar. I want to make sure that we understand what we mean when I say that sin threatens to derail it all. Because I think uh, as we grew up in the church, if you grew up in the church, if not, maybe you don't have this baggage. But for many of us who did grow up in the church, we see sin primarily as a legal problem. We see sin as a problem that there are rules that God put into place. We break those rules and there's a penalty to be paid for breaking those rules. It's a penal code. And so God says, here's the rule. We break the rule. God says the penalty for that broken rule is death. And then we say, but Jesus saved us from that death. He took that penalty upon Himself so that we might live. And so we begin to frame the entire experience of what it means to be a Christian as a legal construct. I broke the law. Jesus took the penalty for breaking the law. And now I've been set free. And that's completely accurate, by the way. It's just completely incomplete. Because when we fall into this pattern of thinking about sin as a legal construct, we miss out. That's just one of the many metaphors that God uses to describe the problem that sin creates and the salvation that Jesus brings. But there's so many more. And I think especially in a text like here in Ezra 9, we need to remember that the essence of sin is not a legal problem, it's a relational one. It is a relationship problem of rejecting an offending God and spitting on His offer of life that He's offering to us. Sometimes it's helpful to think about it in terms of human relationships. It's not the same, but it's the closest we've got this side of heaven. So let me give you an example. Let's say we discover you and let's say your wife, let's just be hypothetical here, discover a new Jack Ryan series on Amazon Prime Video. And you say, let's wait together and let's watch this series together. This will be our special series to watch after the kids go to bed. Let's just, you and I, let's hold off and watch this together. Now, let's say hypothetically, we're going to stay in this hypothetical realm. Let's say hypothetically, one of you happens to binge watch the entire season while your wife's at work. How might that affect your relationship? See, sin has taken place. And you can't just make that go away. Something's got to happen to address that sin before the relationship can keep moving. Or uh, let's go one step deeper. uh, Staying in this relationship idea, but let's say you discover your wife is allergic to roses. And in fact, hates cut flowers because they die so quickly and they're a lousy symbol of love. And every Valentine's Day, you continue to give her roses. How does that affect your relationship? You know, at the sort of least dramatic level, that's evidence of complete cluelessness. At its worst, it's evidence of blatant contempt that says, I don't actually care about who you are or what you want or what you think or what's valuable to you. I'm just going through the motions. Do we need to go all the way to the third example of a young couple that says, let's get married? I love you and I will love you only for the rest of my life. And that is a place of risk and vulnerability and absolute trust. 
They say their vows, they start a new life together based on that absolute trust and that mutual respect. And then one of them starts sleeping around. We call that a problem. And that relationship is broken until that problem has been addressed. I think this is the closest thing we can get to when we're talking about what's happening in Ezra chapter 9. God has said, will you marry me? And his people have said, yes. And then they go off and they intermarry and adopt the worship practices. There's the big deal. They adopt the worship practices of the pagan nations around them, which God has explicitly said, don't do that. That's a one-way ticket to a broken relationship. And they do it anyway. And I can't think after Ezra has read the law, I can't think after their entire history that it's evidence of cluelessness. I think it's evidence of contempt. That's sin. And I think the problem is, that's our sin too. The people sin and it threatens to mess up the whole renewal thing because it messes up their relationship with God. Just like sin messes up our relationships with God. Because this is our will. As we continue to seek renewal, as we continue to seek after the Lord, look, we are a rescued people. The, the parallel we might draw is God had rescued them from Babylon and brought them out to the safe place to rebuild the temple. He'd already rescued them. And then they cheated on Him. Well, we're a rescued people. We've been saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And yet we still sin. We still cheat on God. We still worship other things. We still turn our back on Him and spit in His face. Whether it's our choices, our attitudes, whether we break a law, we break God's heart. And we break ourselves. So how do you deal with it when it happens? Sin is a problem. Because it still happens. Even after you've been saved. If we're chasing after this ongoing relationship with God, what do we do with sin when it gains a foothold? I think we have a couple of tendencies. One of them is to minimize sin. Oh, look how small it is. Right? It's no big deal because we're forgiven. We're a forgiven people. God has already rescued us, so sin isn't really a thing anymore. We can go on sinning because grace will increase. Wait, that sounds wrong. We're going to keep giving God roses on Valentine's Day. And we're going to keep thinking we're enjoying a, a relationship with God. But neither one of us is fooled. We know there's actually no relationship going on there. The result of minimizing sin and pretending like it's no big deal is distance between us and God. That's not actually a relationship and it's sure not renewal. So minimizing sin solves nothing. So let's go to the equal and opposite extreme. Let's make it big! Let's maximize sin! Let us just self-flagellate. It is the, let's be overwhelmed with crushing shame and guilt. Let's be focused on the depth of our own depravity, our complete inability to bring anything good or holy out of ourselves. 
James chapter 4, grieve, mourn, wail, trade in your laughter for sorrow. Stop celebrating Valentine's Day altogether, because what's the point? Who could love me? What's the result of this? Distance between us and God. It's the same result, in fact. Whether we minimize sin or maximize sin, it's the same result. Neither solution works. The question is, is there a better way? What else are we supposed to do with our sin? Of course there's a better way. Ezra shows us the better way. We confess it. That sounds too easy. It really is. And yet, it is the hardest thing we will ever have to do. Confession. Name it. Own it. Reject it. And throw ourselves on God's grace and the promise of His forgiveness. And when I say confession, I don't mean it's a formula. There's nothing we recite It's not a hoop that we jump through in order to get what we want. It is a heart that understands that when we spit in God's face, we actually need to address that for the relationship to continue. It is a a heart condition of godly sorrow that acknowledges I've broken God's law. And really, it's not the law that's the problem. It's the fact that in breaking God's law, I've poured contempt on my God. It's acknowledging that as I sin, I hurt God. I hurt others. I hurt myself. And the result of sin is estrangement in my relationship from God. Look at Ezra's prayer because because it's stunningly beautiful. And there are aspects of this that we can learn from. Ezra chapter 9, he begins, Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. Here's how Ezra is going to deal with sin. He's going to pray. And he says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached to the heavens. He goes on with some of the history that says, look, we know what this results in. We've been down this road like for a thousand years. We're starting to figure it out. And he does this publicly. That's the other beautiful thing. He's doing this to teach as well as confess. He wants people to see here's what it looks like. Here's how we do it. Because it's hard to get ourselves to actually do it. The text continues with a beautiful portrait here. But now, For a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious. Wait, do you hear the tone change? After, oh, we've sinned. But but you, God, and there's a a different atmosphere in the air, but you have been gracious. He starts focusing on God's own character. You've given us a remnant, a firm place. And so our God gives light to our eyes. Literally, you make our eyes sparkle again. Though, verse 9, though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. <clears throat> he has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. 
He's granted us new life. This is what God wants for us. But after focusing on God, the beauty of God's character, then he gets kind of specific. But what can we say after this? After beholding you, our God, and your graciousness and your love, and that you make our eyes sparkle, we've forsaken your commands. Remember, here it is. Here's what you said to do. Don't do X. What has happened to us is X. (laughs) We did the exact thing you said not to do. Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us? Leaving us no remnant or survivor? He ends by saying, Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. And here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. He's certainly not minimizing his sin. And yet, his eyes are focused on the character and nature of his God. So he's not maximizing his sin either. What's he doing here? He's confessing it. And the three things that he does. One, he clings to God's character. He celebrates. The fact that we can confess is a testament to the fact that our God is not a punitive God in the sense that the penalty has been paid. Can you imagine confessing your sin knowing that if you do, you'll die? Kind of uh, not incentive to confess. But knowing there's a gracious, generous, loving, faithful God, faithful to the next, His love endures forever, I will cling to God's character as I come before Him in confession. Then they confess with specificity. Oh, and, and here's the actual laws we broke. <laughs> right down to chapter and verse. But even then, you can, you can almost hear it in His tone of voice. It's not about the chapter and verse. It's about the heart of that law. And we violated the heart of the law. And then they throw themselves upon God's grace. Here we we are, the remnant. Though because of our guilt, not one of us can stand before you. This is confession. And here's what it comes to. We ask the question, how do we deal with sin? when we're striving to be renewed. When we're on this journey chasing after God and we want more of Him and more of Him, and yet the reality of our experience is sin happens and messes it all up. What do we do in that moment? How do we handle it? What what do we do when sin threatens to derail renewal? And I propose that this is a text that teaches us that confession is God's gift to a rescued people to keep on going with God. Confession is God's gift to a rescued people to keep going with God. What do I mean by that? I mean it's God's gift based on His character, His nature, His grace, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. We can confess our sins to God because He is faithful and just to forgive. 
Why did David have a, a heart after God's own heart? Not because he was super awesome. Not because he was super leader dude. It's because he had a broken and contrite spirit before God. Because he knew how to confess. Because that was God's gift to him. Here's how you deal with sin. You give it back to me. It, it's, it's God's gift to a rescued people. This is a, a post-rescue reality. Whether it's a post-rescue from Babylon or whether it's a post-rescue that Jesus has already paid for our sin at the cross, we still sin. So that sin still drives a wedge between us and God relationally. There's an estrangement that happens when sin enters the room. And this is God saying, I know. This is part of the process. It's part of the journey. We need to keep working on this. Because your character is going to be gradually transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Which means gradually we're going to be dying to sin. Which means sometimes we're still going to sin. And when that happens, God says, you've already been rescued. Your, your destiny is already secure. But I didn't just save you from your sin. I saved you into a relationship with me, God says. And I want to enjoy that with you. And when you sin, that actually puts estrangement there. So God says, you are a rescued people. So God says, I want you to keep going. Let's get on the bikes and head out on the highway and enjoy life together. Not just you on your bike out on the highway, but you with God out on the highway. God wants to be with us and to enjoy this relationship. And when sin threatens to derail renewal, confession is God's gift to a rescued people to keep going with Himself. I, I love that last verse, verse 15. Lord, the God of Israel, You are righteous. And here we are before You in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in Your presence. Confession keeps us from minimizing our sin and pretending it's no big deal. It needs to be addressed so we confess it. Confession also keeps us from maximizing our sin and saying there's no solution here. No, there is a solution. It's confession. And what they could only glimpse at, we know in full. They saw God's character. They trusted in His, his, his nature. They saw that His forgiveness would, be, would come and would be complete. And while they said, not one of us can stand in your presence. Well, there is one who can. And there is one who does. Jesus Christ, who died. And more than that, who was raised to life. This is from Romans 8, 35. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. Where is He? Oh, that's right. He's standing in God's presence. The very place that we couldn't dare to stand because of our sin. And Jesus stands there and then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Um, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, the Apostle Paul writes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I'm, I've read these verses forever. I've never seen them through the lens of the relationship God wants with me and how my sin messes that up. And to read these verses, it says, there is nothing that can separate me from God because of what Jesus has done. Reminds me that the essence of sin is not some legal consequence for breaking a rule. The essence of sin is relationship. I messed up my relationship with my God and I want Him back. And how do I get back? He's already made the way. Jesus took our sin upon Himself. And rather than minimizing our sin and saying it's no big deal or maximizing it and saying there's no hope, He simply says, confess it. God says, here's my gift to you. You might have started out strong. We're good at getting things started. It's the keeping going that's sometimes challenging. But what comes with it is the forgiveness of God. We're good at getting started. Not so good at keeping going. And confession is God's gift to a rescued people so that we might keep going with God. So my question for you this morning is simply this. What is keeping you from keeping going with God? We, we don't like confession. It's hard enough doing it with one another, much less doing it with the almighty God of the universe. Admitting we're wrong, owning it when we've hurt someone, how much more so with God? If you have an aversion to confession, if you are allergic to confession, this morning I want you to hear it not as something negative you have to do, but as a beautiful gift from God that allows you to come back into right relationship with Him. It's God opening a way back home. It's a gift. If confession is hard, do it anyway. Maybe it's just that we're unfamiliar with it. We don't do it a lot. It's not a part of our regular morning worship services. I read lots of little quiet time and, and devotional things, my utmost first highest, or, or as I'm working through a little booklet. Very seldom is there an aspect of daily confession involved in those. Maybe we need to bring confession back more front and center into what we do. Not because we need to be down on ourselves, but because it's a gift. It is a beautiful gift that keeps us from minimizing or maximizing our sin. It actually deals with the sin by giving it back to God. And then we can take our God's hand again and walk forward. There's only one goal of confession. And it's not to get out of jail. It's to walk with our God in closeness and intimacy again. This morning God wants you back. What's getting in the way of that? And do you dare confess your sin to God? Do you trust that He will really forgive you? Do you trust that He really wants you? Do you trust that He really loves you and doesn't want sin getting between you? The invitation this morning is simply this. Come home.
Be renewed. Keep going with God. And you just might find that confession is one of the most beautiful parts of your day as you come back to your God and Savior. We want to close by offering some time for silence and confession. I want to invite you to spend some time just quietly inviting the Holy Spirit to say, what is there in my life that's getting in the way? I'm not saying, how many rules have I broken, God? Wrong, wrong approach. The question is, God, what in my life is messing up my relationship with you? Help me see it, help me understand it, and help me own it and get rid of it. And if we follow sort of the model we see in Ezra, even as you're praying, I'm going to maybe put some things on the screen here. Cling to God's character. He's gracious and loving. He has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. He's waiting for us to come home. So even as you begin to pray this way and you're thinking, oh, I can't do it. Yes, you can because of who God is. We're also invited to confess with specificity. Here's the things I've done. Here's the attitudes I've had. Here's those thoughts that were left unsaid, but they're still corrosive in my heart. There's even a place for throwing ourselves upon God's grace and saying, of course I can't do this on my own. The starter motor's stuck. And no matter how many times I hit it with a wrench, it's not working anymore. I need the master mechanic to come in and to give me a new heart in exchange for my old one. God, this is all you. But when we do these things, we find forgiveness waiting for us in Jesus' name. So I invite you to take these next moments of silence. Even if, if this is helpful for you, look up at the screen every once in a while. Move through this. Delight in who God is. Confess with specificity. Throw yourself on His grace and receive forgiveness in Jesus' name. I will end by praying over us as a church family in a few moments. Let's pray together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me. And I will be whiter than snow. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. And through what Christ has done for us on the cross, you offer forgiveness free and clear. Yet we still mess up. We are reminded in 1 John that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. So Father, You've heard the prayers of Your people. You've heard us confess sin before You. We acknowledge before Your holiness our lack thereof. Forgive us, O God. And thank You for being the God who does forgive, who does reach down from on high and to take us up out of the pit, to set our feet on solid ground, to give us a new name, a new robe, and a new life with You. And that as of this moment, we are once again whiter than snow could be. Because You, O God, make our eyes sparkle. May we live into the beautiful gift of confession, not as something bad that we have to do, but as a beautiful gift from You that actually restores our relationship. We don't want to live apart from You. We only want to do this with You. And when we wander off, when we run off, call us home. And thank You for the gift of confession that deals with sin and allows us to take your hand again as we walk forward. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.